Well, when, when I see thumbs of authority, I see the one that matters, and do I get the other one? Just because it makes us both feel good, like we have some contribution here, when we really don't. Okay, I can... I should probably leave. I can't see them now very well, either way. Okay, let's see where I am. Before I get started here, uh, we'll be back on June the 5th. We're on this alternating Sunday summer schedule, and Dave and Terry, if they exist, are covered in dust or visqueen there in the back of the room because uh, we have been sheetrocking, spraying texture and paint, and there's dust everywhere, and it's a... It is not making Lori very happy, I can tell you that. So things are, are grim. But uh, that's how it works. We also received notification that some of you are getting your mail returned to us because the post office, which was supposed to forward the mail from the post office box, which we have canceled, the post office has decided that they gave us one week of periodic, I'm sorry, one, a one, one week period where they'll return mail or uh, forward mail to us and see people are getting their mail back. And if you get your mail back, just go ahead and send it to 12130 Woodway Circle, Anchorage, Alaska, 99516. That's the forwarding address from the post office box that we, again, we we were, we were not forced, but we came to a position where we no longer could afford that, uh, that post office box. Okay, hopefully those announcements... Uh, I don't have time to do any other, so I'll just keep going now. May the 22nd, 2022, lecture discussion number 174, I hope, on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, Genesis 1 through 3, and Genesis 15. Today, because of the summer schedule, is a little bit more, it's a, I kind of, it's kind of a parenthetical summation, because I recognize that we have a disjointed, uh, system now in place and we just have to do it i've got so much to do and and lori is lazy i mean it's not, no, i'm kidding obviously somebody's going to say that the scream you heard in the background is me going to get my come up come up and say, okay when we last left the intrepid cliff city and travelers we found them by them i mean us and me and we uh, we were pretty much calcified in Goodell's and completeness theorems, Bell's inequality, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, Penrose, Lucas, and Hammerhoff's non-computability uh, with respect to the collapsing of waveform and quantum interaction in the neuronal cytoskeleton and or- orchestrated objective reduction in Schrodinger's cat and the observer effect, uh, along with a governing energy that is hidden and already, just going over that, already the whole, the audience, the vast internet audience is out cold right now. Boom, bang. I just lost them all. I could hear the sound. Not a creature is stirring. Not even a mouse. And what does that mean? I've always wondered what does that mean. You know, why can't a mouse stir? Not a creature was stirring. Not even a mouse. Uh, what does it even mean? What is meant by stir? Causing a commotion is a stir. Would you agree? Stirring a... So we have to define stir. We have all kind of awaken, whisk, agitate. Uh, obviously, uh, what I think it means today is that the audience right now is so comatose that there is no movement. Absolutely motionlessness. Without motion, there's no vibration. And without vibration, then we have quiet. We have the sound of silence, to quote the song, right? And in such a condition, a mouse moving would be heard because all other noise has been 
attenuated or truncated. Attenuated would be better. Shunted to ground. And you might remember that I've said many times that Jesus Christ, the Lord God of creation, John 1, 1 through 4, and Colossians 1, 15 through 18, he's the one who conceived time. He's the one that he is the mind that said time will be installed. He is the institutioner of, of time. He's before time. Time consists in him. Again, Colossians 1, 15 through 18. He has authority over time. It's his. He owns it. And therefore, he's able to view all of time simultaneously, and he's also capable to see time suspended. That's what he can do. Now, Supper Dave and I were, were talking about, he gets on these debates that I just, I don't have tolerance for it, but there are people out there, we just, just covered this, and I'm just throwing it in, Dave, I'm, I'm winging it here. There are people who can't understand uh, an infinite mind's capability. They just can't. They think an infinite mind is unable to provide solutions for things like omniscience and free will. Or, uh, oh my gosh, I just don't want to get into it. But they, they don't see that we're dealing with somebody who's outside of time. And that mind is different than our mind. We have an inside of mind perspective. He doesn't have that. And he's capable to see time suspended. I've made that point many, 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 a few years ago. In other words, God can withdraw time for himself. And he can do it for anything. It only makes sense. If he can install time, then he has the power to disengage time, suspend time. And when he suspends time, how's motion affected by that? with respect to his frame of reference. So he can see everything completely motionless. And I have made that point many times in the past. And to repeat the obvious, God is the ultimate observer. When you talk about the observer effect, he is the observer effect. He is this governing hidden agency that everybody in in physics is talking about. He's the force of nature. He's the consciousness from which all matter and energy and time and life and uh, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, gravity, electromagnetism, all consciousness comes from him, flows from him, originates with him, thermodynamics, everything that we see, all of it is his. And clearly he can view his entire creative reality in a state of motionlessness, and he does if he so chooses, or he can see it in full motion if he wills. Whatever he wants to do, he can do. So not a creature stirring would be pure, total, silent, motionlessness. No resonance and no vibration. That he, that he could accomplish. And for those who enjoy these thought experiments, these conjectural ventures, consider what I would call the fragility of God's ubiquitous law. If you were here for the lectures from uh, Professor Edgar Andrews on the ubiquitous law, of God, then this will, you will understand what I'm doing. Otherwise, go buy the book. It's fantastic. Who made God? We used to give him away. And he covers ubiquity, uh, with respect to law. Uh, he and only he can mess with his laws. Those laws are not for him. Those are his laws and he can do with what he wills with his laws. He can extract whatever law he would deem necessary to extract at any given time he feels is a good time to do so. Just imagine if he, again, this is a conjectural venture, just imagine if he, Revelation 9, 6, 
alongside of prohibiting death for 150 days because he took away death for 150 days, Revelation 9, 6. Unbelievable what he did. And we can, we, just trying to figure out how he did it and what the consequences of it is just an extraordinary process and I would recommend it. Just imagine that. Alongside of prohibiting death for 150 days, we also see what he did in Genesis 7.24. He simultaneously can remove sound, if he wants to, or light, which he did. Revelation 9.2, 16.10, Matthew 24.29, Joel 13, I'm sorry, Joel 3.14 through 17, Matthew 27.45, Genesis 1.2, 1 Samuel 2.9, Isaiah 8.22, Matthew 8.12, Jude 1.13, 2 Peter 2.4, he got rid of light. No light. No, no photons. Utter darkness. And, and there is without controversy a definitive purpose uh, or meaning to God's repeated removal of all light. I should interject that uh, Penrose and Lucas and Hammerhoff saw consciousness as a vibrating wave. When I'm talking about vibration and resonance, they see consciousness as a vibrating wave of subatomic particles. And again, that's resonance, so more on that later. Vibration is a very important thing. And many people believe that God has established a resonant frequency for his creation, a resonant frequency. As you, as you, if you get familiar with resonance, and you're a trumpet player. If I allow my, my exhalation, if it will, if I do it properly, it goes into the trumpet and causes the trumpet to vibrate. You can actually feel it and hear it. It's an incredible thing. If I play the trumpet badly, which is what I do 95% of the time, then the trumpet will not resonate and you won't get this beautiful full sound that is capable of coming out of that instrument. And, they, and there are many who believe that there is a resonance, a frequency for the creation. Again, well, I don't have time for that. I just went skewing off into the wilderness. For now, Christ is the light of the world, of the universe, all light comes from him, descends from him, who is the light, the light of life, John 8, 12. He says, I am the light of Genesis 1. So the question becomes, is why does he then, rem he is the light, the light is him. Uh, the light is, the light of life is a person. So when he removes light, which he has done, as I, as I laid out in those scriptures, I just rattled off, what's he doing? What's the meaning? What's he trying to say? Because he's always trying to say something. I will suggest that God removing himself is uh, taking the light away. When I, when I recognize that he's taking light away, himself away, because if he takes himself away, what results? The light's gone and darkness is here. So there you understand your Matthew 20, 25, 41. There is, no dark, there is no light in the lake of fire. So once I see that he's doing that, I ask myself, where else did he do it? And I think it is obvious that it's comparable. The removing himself as light is comparable to the hardening of heart issue in Exodus 7, 14, right? 8, 19, 8, 32, 9, 7, 9, 12, 9, 20. That is, that is the Pharaoh, the hardening of the Pharaoh's heart issue that we brought up a while back. When I say we, I mean me. Obviously, Jesus Christ is the angel of the Lord, and he removed himself. And he, in the ninth plague, he withdrew the light from Egypt, Exodus 10.22. He left a thick 
darkness, a darkness that you could feel it was that thick, and it again is the ninth plague. So he took the light away. It's one of the plagues. I'm scratching where I itch, in case you were wondering. Could have something to do with the fact that the entire house is filled with sheetrock dust. Again, to repeat, what are the implications of the Creator God leaving, stepping back? Not just standing still, because He'll do that too, but He's actually moving away, He's departing. That's Ezekiel 10.18. The Shekinah glory left the temple through the east gate. Ah, that's so much information there. The east gate becomes critical. As you know, that is uh, Genesis 3.24, where the man and the woman left the garden through the east gate. Adam, Romans 5, 14 through 15, a type of Christ left the garden through the east gate. Adam, if he, if Christ is the light and the light is the Shekinah glory, then Adam is a type of the Shekinah glory when he leaves through the east gate. Hopefully you got all of that. Christ is the Shekinah glory, Matthew 17, 2. He opens himself up and shows his disciples, his, uh, Peter, James, and John, I am the Shekinah glory that we used to reside in the temple of Israel, in the Solomonic temple. So he is the Shekinah glory, Revelation 1, 13 through 17, Daniel 7, 9, Revelation 19, 12 through 15. So what causes God, Jesus God, to abandon, to retreat? What makes him do it? Why does he draw away? Why does he leave? How can he leave? He's omnipresent. He's infinite. The creation is not infinite, in spite of what some cosmological people would say. Uh, astronomical uh, experts. The universe is not infinite. It is very small compared to infinity. But what causes Jesus God to abandon, to retreat? And, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring up Romans one twenty four right here through 32. What causes God, what causes Jesus to give them over to a debased, hardened mind? Let me put that on the on the board. Notice that what he says is, "I will give them over to a debased mind." <coughs> Excuse me. To give them over to a hardened mind. What's the mind? Note that he's giving them over to their what? Their consciousness, because that's the mind. It is not the physical. Substance. It is a non-physical substance, the consciousness, the mind that is evil, the mind that has darkened, the mind that is debased, not the brain, not the physical device, but that which controls the physical device. <clears throat> and, the, and the Bible is absolutely clear. Anyway, at Romans one twenty-eight comes an answer, one of the answers here. One twenty-five of Romans as well. The reason that he backs up and lets them go the way they wish to go, he gives them over, he removes himself from them. The reason he does that is because they that are allowed to take the path of the wide gate, remember we've talked about the wide gate and the reinforced or the guarded gate. Those who want to go into the wide gate, he lets them do it. They are the ones that have exchanged the truth for the lie of Satan. That's what Romans says, Romans one twenty-five, And Christ is the truth, and Satan is the lie. 
Satan has a lie and is the lie. And the Antichrist, of course, is called the lie as well because the two of them uh, uh, accommodate one another. They actually blend together. They join. Christ uh, is the truth, John 14.6. And the truth is rejected by these who he allows to go to a debased mind through the wide gate. He allows it because they have chosen to, to reject the truth and take the mark of the lie, Revelation 14, 9 through 12. So belief in Christ is refused and forsaken, and he will remove himself. And these are those who refuse to believe the truth, willfully disavowing that Jesus Christ is the truth. It is true about everything he says, and they they want to choose the, the thick darkness. My question has always become, do they know that, that that's what they're doing? Some will say they're so ignorant. If if only they could see the thick darkness, they would never choose it. So he shows it to them. Did Did the Pharaoh still choose it? Yes, he did. Why would somebody, knowing that their their destiny, their destination is thick darkness and torment, why would they choose that? He says so. Why they would do it? They hate him. But again, yes, what kind of mind is this? What kind of consciousness is this? It is a debased one. And so he identifies that. Refusing to believe. Absolutely refusing. And think about the ability to refuse the truth. How is it that they have the ability to refuse the truth? Dave and I were talking about it earlier. Is that ability forced on them? Are they coerced into believing the lie? Or do, or do they believe it of their own will? So you can see where this discussion always ends up, right? So the point is, yea, a point, there is repeated darkness in the Bible, supernaturally imposed darkness by Jesus God himself. The tribulation period, the tribulation period alone has five of these such darknesses. As It's as if the Lord God Almighty is purposely revealing the thick darkness, which I believe he absolutely is doing. He's revealing the consequences of your decisions, of your darkened mind. He, he's demonstrating there is accountability that is connected to unbelief. The hating of the truth. And so we have all of these removings of light events that are obviously what? What are they? They are, in my opinion, my little humble, humblest opinion, the humbler of all humbler opinion. They are clearly to me, they are advanced warnings. He is warning. He is actually showing you what awaits your unbelief position, your hating of him. Now, he is incredibly sorrowful over that. He weeps for the ones who choose condemnation. And he says so and demonstrates it all over Scripture. Christ does, and God does, and and, in Genesis 6 as well. He mourns, he groans. Did that at Lazarus' tomb? All those dead people, only Lazarus came out. What happened to the others? But God, Christ gives warnings. It's one of his attributes. See the 120 years of warning in Genesis 6.3. He gave them 120 years of warning before the flood. I have made the point that he's going to give the, the earth today of our time 120 years warning before the tribulation occurs. 
And obviously, we have the very first warning in Scripture, Genesis 2.17. And we should pay attention to that first warning. And don't overlook the fact that, this, that once that warning was given, what did Satan do with it? He declared that the, the, to the woman at Genesis 2.17, that I'm sorry, that the Genesis 2.17 warning was a lie. He said that in Genesis 3.4. So they get a warning at 2.17. Satan says it's a lie at Genesis 3.4. That's not a coincidence. There are no coincidences. There's omniscience and, om- and infinity, and it's inconsistent with uh, coincidence. Anyway, his saying, Satan saying to the woman at three four that the the warning was a lie is illogical. It's paradoxical because it's it actually defeats Satan's own position to begin with. His position is is there's no solution to sin, there's no solution to omniscience and free will. There's no solution to any of these collisions that are all over the Bible. The theme of collision in the Bible is is profound. And Satan is saying no, there's no solution. And he he has tremendous amount of agreement in the church today. We have all kinds of churches say there's no solution to omniscience and free will. There's no solution to sin. They can't see infinity being able to produce. That's why Gödel's incompleteness theorem. In order to solve, to prove something, you have to be infinite. Do you see where that fits together? I hope you do. We'll get back to that as we go along. But Satan's premise, that being specifically that all things, all means all to Satan in his little hypothesis here, every, his supposition, every movement, he says, quantum, subatomic, particle level included, every sound, every thought, every action, every reaction is super determined, it's predestined, therefore it is unchangeable, it cannot be changed, God is immutable, he does not change. And and everything is preordained before time was installed. That is Satan's position. Free will, uncertainty, choosing, believing, all without exception according to Satan's position are illusionary. And again, that's the basis of his lie. As you know, I say it over and over and over again. Why do I do it? Because I'm forced to against my will. I'm kidding. It's predestined that I do it. Eventually, the natural progression of Satan's premise is that God is the author of evil. As you know, I can point to that. As you know, I've done it, what, three or four times. I guess I should mark. That's where it all goes. When you have these positions, you ultimately end up with God being the author of evil. Today's point, really, there's a point today. How does one reconcile the light of the world removing himself, demonstrating that he is allowing, he is giving over to a debased uh, consciousness, he's giving them over to a journey to thick darkness, uh, how do you reconcile that with superdeterminism? It can't be reconciled, in my view. See, why bother? If your position is Satan's position, that the God of creation is foremost, fundamentally, a pathological, ultimate control freak, that's what you're saying he is. What's the point? Well, yeah, well, what's the point? 
Why, why would that, why would we have exactly right? My goodness, I hope you all heard what she said. He, she said, why even have a creation if that is what you think God is? Why, why would he create anything? What kind of person creates? Why does he warn those who he has predetermined to utter darkness? What's the point of the warning? Because he does it over and over and over again. He shows all these darknesses. He gives them every kind of understanding of what, what awaits their decision making. Why bother to warn somebody that is predetermined? Makes no sense. It's illogical. So you can see that, that Satan saying to Eve that it's all a lie, that warning is a lie, made no sense whatsoever. You don't warn people that have no... that. Warning is irrelevant to somebody who has no will. It makes no sense. It's the same as why do angels rejoice over the believing faith of one person? They rejoice. They must obviously think that there's something valuable to to whatever that one person did. And they cheer and they're exultant and they're thrilled over it. What's the, Why would they do that? If they are all unable to willfully choose, if will is a, an illusionary con, uh, construct. So that, the, why do angels rejoice over the believing faith of one person is the exact same question as why does God remove himself and warn? It's the same question, different form. Again, when light departs, what remains? Darkness. Why does he depart? Aside from a warning. Aside from exposing the coming inevitable adversity. Satan and his angels are convinced they will never be in adversity. Psalm 10.6 tells us what they think, what they say. They say we will never be in adversity. We will never be held accountable because free will is an illusion. God is the author of evil. That's what they say. Now, Because God is the God is the author of evil. That's right. That God is still responsible for their. That everything, everyone's a robot, an automaton, and there is no and 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 again, this is exactly what quantum physics says too. They're identical. This is super determinism. Is exactly what they believe. Einstein said definitively that he believed there was no free will. I can find you hundreds of YouTube videos of people proclaiming there is no free will. And you ask yourself, do you ever contemplate the consequences of that? No, they don't. They never see the attachment to God ultimately being the author of evil. If I had no choice, I have to itch myself again. If I had, no, I should take a bath at least once a month, don't you think? <laughs> if I have no free will, uh, then there's only hopelessness. I'm not saying that you have a significant level of free will. I'm saying that omniscience and free will are not, uh, omniscience is not causation and there is a solution to it. Again, Goodell's second theorem, you have to be infinite to solve it. First and second theorems. Okay, I'm getting lost here. Speaking of accountability. And I don't know, let me say this really fast, I don't know that the angels uh, believe what they say, or, or if they're just, a, it's an attempt to proselytize. Proselytize. I, I don't know what they're doing. Are they trying to get more victims just out of spite, out of hate? Or do they really believe it? Does Satan believe it? Now, Satan knows he's a liar. Does he believe his own lies? And that, that, of course, is, a, is the ultimate narcissistic position. You lie so much, you're a congenital liar, you've always lied, you begin to believe your lies are true. 
I've unfortunately, if you if you be in the position that I am, sitting at the desk that I sit, uh, you become an expert in pathological narcissism because you see it all the time. I see it almost every day. Almost half of the, if I had to guess how many of my phone calls deal with pathological or sociopathic uh, narcissism, I would say at least half. It's a very big problem in the church. I, the first book I ever bought that exposed me to it was a guy, Kim Hauk, who, who said uh, pathological antagonists in the church. The church attracts them because you can have a lot of power in the church. And they love power. And they love control. And I abhor control. I do. I really do. I, I'm not interested in it. I don't want to be controlled. I don't want to control you or anybody else. You're on your own. I'm not going to, I'll give you what I, what I did wrong. I can tell you, I, I played the trumpet this way. And if you do it that way, you're going to be terrible. And so if you do it, well, I tried to warn you. Because that's the only thing I have is, is my experience. Uh, and one of the advantages of multiple failures in business, you bought my book, How to Make $20 in Real Estate Over 50 Years. You know that I know how to lose money in real estate. I know how to do it. So don't, I'm not going to be able to tell you how to make money in real estate, but boy, can I tell you how to lose money in construction and general contracting. Okay. Accountability. Speaking of judgment as a warning, as with warning. Because uh, judgment and warning, what's he, what is he giving you? He is, he's warning you of what? Of accountability and judgment. And, and, and so accountability and judgment is something that God proclaims to be beyond question. You can't question it. It's coming. There's nothing you can do. Uh, you cannot argue against it. It is a certainty. And God proclaims that in Hebrews 9.22. It's appointed once for man to die. And then what? A vacation? Cake and ice cream? No, judgment. Daniel 7, judgment. 2 Peter 2.4, judgment. Genesis 6, judgment. Genesis 7, judgment. All of the book of Revelation, judgment. And warning. Warning and judgment. Put the two of them together. But especially Revelation 20, 11 through 15. He spends the whole seven years of the, of the Revelation period warning people about judge, uh, Revelation 20, 11 through 15, this, the white, great white throne of judgment and accountability. So why do the angels say we will have no judgment? We will have no adversity. We will have no accountability in Psalm 10, 6. Why do they believe that? Do they really believe it? Superdeterminism undermines literally the objectives, the rationalities of all of that judgment that is in the Bible. If everything is superdetermined, then what is the purpose of judgment? Does it have a purpose? It doesn't have a purpose. There's no reason to have the trial if everything has been predetermined. Why does he go through the Revelation 20, 11 through 15, Great White Throne, and open books and do all of that? It's worthless. It's meaningless if there's only superdeterminism. Usually, the theological superdeterminists focus solely on the salvation side. They don't look at the judgment side. They don't recognize the issues that are there, in my opinion. They decouple them. Uh, the, the salvation from judgment. And setting aside the, the, this impact, when you set aside the impact of judgment, uh, then you're now in a different quicksand. You, you, and, and this is what they do. They, they do not want to talk about the nature or the character or the goodness, 
the faithfulness, the loving kindness, the mercy, the fairness, the justice of God, Psalm 36, 5 through 7. They don't want to do that because that is a problem. If I have the position that children that are not born in Christian families go to eternal damnation, which is a common position, and I used to call it the, uh, the daycare in the lake of fire position. But if that's my position, then I have to reconcile that with the loving kindness, the fairness. Is, is that fair? Well, they'll say, yes, it's fair. We don't know how it's fair, but it's fair, so everybody believes it's fair. Even though every part of you says, no, wait a minute, it's in conflict with his loving kindness, his mercy, his faithfulness, his justice. All of that, again, 36 Psalm 5 through 7. Might I suggest, again, humbly, of course, that one might be reticent to promote a concept that invokes the Exodus 17:7 response from God when he says, Israel, claiming that he was the author of evil, he had brought them out to murder all of them, their children and their animals. That's what they said in Exodus 17:7. And he says, that is the same as saying, is God among us or not? And I can say it this way, is God good or not? If you're answering no to that question, then I, I would... I would hope that you would be reticent to promote that concept because you're invoking Exodus 77. Rule number one, God is always good. Rule number one, we in the idiot class may not know how he is always good. I will concede that. But return to rule one. Don't have a position that says he's not good. Because that's what will happen. They'll say, I don't know how he's good, so it's a possibility he is not good. And now guess who you're agreeing with again? If you return to rule one eventually, you, us, we, me, if we always keep rule one, guess what happens? He will, he will honor that. If you're saying, is God among us? Is God good or not? If you're wrestling with that, then you are in Exodus 17.7. A.W. Pink, Lori found this the other day, and she put it on the website. A.W. Pink, a wonderful man. I mean, I have all of his books. There are things I don't agree with him on. Or I should say there are things he doesn't agree with me on. Well, he might agree now. He could. He's probably going, hey, gosh, that guy was right. Maybe not. I'll be very careful. But he said this, and he's absolutely right. The Bible is no lazy man's book. Much of it is treasure like the valuable minerals in the bowels of the earth. Only they yield themselves up to the diligent seeker. And he's absolutely correct. May I suggest if you describe your position as a horrible truth, as so many do, perhaps you are not in compliance with rule number one. You're in contraposition to rule one. In addition, if you find your position to be in agreement with the atheistic evolutionary philosophy of the secular superdeterminists, perhaps you still remain in contraposition to rule one. That should be something that frightens you. I agree with these people. You've got to be kidding me. These are the debased, darkened minds of, of, of Romans. What, what makes me think it's a good idea to be in agreement with them? Do I just want to be because they have all these PhDs and all of these other elements of academia? 
do not give up rule number one. Yes, I'm itching myself again. It's probably something like lice, so don't be worried. You're fine. It's hardly contagious. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Where am I now? Ah, Two gates. Two birds. Mount of olives. There you go. Those of you who are wondering, what are we going to do with the two birds today? Here we are. Mount of Olives, City of Jerusalem, Numbers 22. That's Balaam and the guarded gate, right? Only one way in and you can't get out. What's that? That's right, eternal security. That doctrine is in Numbers 22. John 3.3 3 and John 3.7. That's where we're going today because why? We're talking about what? The two birds. And just as an aside, the refutation of Satan's lie must be somewhere, look at the time, must be somewhere in Genesis 15. It's got to be there. He has to do it there, in my opinion. I believe I'm right. Hopefully by now everyone listening has heard me state that I believe Genesis 15 contains an abounding, I I can make the case for innumerable levels of doctrinal truth. You, You can't seem to exhaust yourself in finding, you can't get through it. There's just every time you think you're done with the Genesis 15, there's another truth in it. In other words, Genesis 15 is loaded to the brim, filled to the brim, overflowing. Keep in mind, Genesis 14, 18 through 24 can't be separated from Genesis 15. I hope I made that case. So you're looking at Genesis 14, 18 through 24 at the same time you're looking at Genesis 15, 1 through 21. So don't separate them. They should never be separated from Genesis 15, Genesis 14, 18 through 24 should never be separated. And that makes Genesis 15 even more so astonishing. Because if I'm right, and Genesis 15 really starts at Genesis 14, 18, then it becomes incredibly powerful. And you just get more and more and more out of it. A.W. Pink, again, was correct. The Bible is not for the inattentive, but for the diligent, the industrious. So keep fighting. If you approach Genesis 14, 18 through 24 to Genesis 15, 21 from the perspective that there are unseen, hidden treasures there, that you have to dig, you have to fight for them. If you approach that way, and, and, and that those unseen truths are just everywhere, they're throughout, and you just your job is to clean, collect the, the unimaginable here. In other words, be the, uh, ah, in other words, Do the opposite of uh, Proverbs one twenty two. That says, "How long are you going to love the simple? Just stop loving the simple." That's what God's saying. Stop it. How long are you going to do this? How relentless are you going to be clinging to the simple? That's what He's asking. We find ourselves in this age now where the simple, the foolish, is loved. It's adored. The mega church of our time is addicted to the simple and the money that accompanies the simple. And that's why they give you the simple because the money comes from the simple. It does not come from the diligent seeking. It never has and never will. Genesis 14.18 to Genesis 15.21 is prima facie evidence directly opposing what we see in this Laodicean megachurch age that we're in. 2 Timothy 4.3-4, 2 Peter 2.17-18 age. That methodology that prevails today. And, and it's overwhelmingly dominant. Turn on the TV and listen and watch it. Anyway, all that to say, John 3, 3 and John 3, 7, the mystery of the born again. So that's where we are today, the mystery of the born again. How am I doing for time, Terry? 
Oh, wow. John 3, 3 through 7. That, there's a great mystery here. And it belongs in this discussion in Genesis 15. Because the Mount of Olives is what? What is the Mount of Olives? What happens to the Mount of Olives? Do you know? Do you know? Do you know? Yes, you do. It is cut in two. Divided. And the city of Jerusalem is also divided. Three pieces. Also divided, Zechariah 14, 4 through 5, and Revelation 16, 17 through 21. Notice I go about collecting that which is divided to figure out why the birds were not divided. I go find the divided things and I go find the undivided things, but I want to know the divided things. Always look for the, the reciprocal as my way of approaching these kinds of things. So I collect as much of the divided in Scripture as, and assume that it's relevant to Genesis 15, 10. And Hebrews 4.12 bears that out. That's central. It's the foremost piece of the puzzle, in my opinion. So I'm going to read Hebrews 4. Uh, uh, 12. Because it's a, it, I think once you get it, you're well on your way. i got to get to it first. I am a professional. Don't try going through these things by yourself. I'm almost there. I'll get there. My fingers and hands don't work. Okay. Hebrews 14. Let's just start at 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. What rest is he talking about? Which rest is it? lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God... Now, i got to say, i got to stop right there because this mistake is always made. For the word of God. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, I have capitalized the Word of God in my Bible because I do that when I get really upset. So I have a big W in there, just like I did here. For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His Sight. So what do you now know about the Word of God? It's a His. It's a Him. What do most people tell you it is in this, in this context? But all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So now you know who the Word of God is. When you see the Word of God, recognize the Word of God. The Word of God is Jesus Christ. It's a person, John 1.1, 1, 1, right? Most commentators neglect that. They neglect the person of Christ here at Hebrews 4.12. I think it's a grievous error. They're really making a mistake. They pontificate otherwise. Jesus Christ, what it's saying, Jesus Christ, the Word of God is alive. That's what it says. 
and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's him that's talking about his characteristics. Piercing even to the division, the dividing of the soul and the spirit from joints and marrow. He's the one that divides the soul and the spirit from the body, the skeleton, if you want to think of it that way, the flesh. He's the discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart, and there is no creature hidden from his sight. None. That's what it's saying. Now, most will say, well, the word is, a, is, just, is the Bible. No, the Bible is him. It's a person. In that context, it's absolutely talking about Christ. He even says so. Obviously, this verse is describing Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4:14 through16 continues to establish it. And, and as does Revelation 1:18 and, and 2:12 and 2:16, Revelation 2:23 and Revelation 19:15, all of those will fit with Hebrews 4: 12-16. Christ is the one who divides the mind and the soul and the spirit and the consciousness from the body, Ecclesiastes 12:7. He's the one that does that. So he's the divider, if you want to think of him that way. Jesus Christ is the sharpest sword. He's the divider of souls and bodies. Obviously, Genesis 15.10 now is relevant here, isn't it? Now we're talking about Abraham is, a, is dividing in Genesis 15. He is a divider. He's being a divider. A dividing divider. And Christ is the one of whom Abraham is a portrait in Genesis 15. And Christ is the divider. Obviously, of all the twos, because the birds are not divided, all the other animals are divided. And Christ is identified as the one who divides. The, of all the twos in the Bible, the two birds, the two testaments, the two gates, the two witnesses, the, there's all countless twos. The sun and the moon. There's twos everywhere. The body and soul. All, of all the twos in the Bible, uh, the one that culminates, the summit of all the twos, is the two that is the God-man. So I ask this question. Do the, are the twos of the birds, the undivided birds, directing us to the God-man hypostatic union? And of course they would. It's Genesis 15. The, the ultimate summit of the twos is the God-man. I want to know how the two witnesses testify of the God-man. Because they do. That's the whole purpose, right? The whole purpose is to testify of the God-man. But why were the, these undivided birds? What is that saying about the God-man? Think about that while I move on. Ah. So you ask, maybe you don't ask, but I will pretend that you asked, what has this to do with Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel? Because that's John 3, 3 through 7, and that's the mystery of the Mar good, about Martin again. What does this have to do with that? You might also ask it this way. Is the exalted, that would be me, some, who would, some would insist inflated or infested, Infected. Anyway, is the exalted HDRP insinuating covertly that the born again mystery is somehow attached to Genesis 14, 18 through 24 and Genesis 15, 10? Am I intimidating that, intimating that covertly? No, I am not insinuating covertly. I am suggesting flat out overtly 
that somehow the born-again mystery is found in Genesis 14, 18 through 24 through Genesis 15, 21. It's going to be there. Because God says, you must be born again, right? He does. So he probably put it in his 15, 10. Probably put it in Genesis 15 with Abraham. Abraham's dividing things, for goodness sake. Again, Genesis 14, 18 through 24 through Genesis 15, 1 through 21 is a mountain of theological truths. It's a mountain. The greatest of these is Genesis 15, 6, which is the first mention in Scripture that salvation comes through only one way. Belief. First time that principle is established. Establishing definitely, definitively, without ambiguity, no stuttering, that mankind is absolutely helpless, hopeless, cannot work or earn uh, this so great a salvation. It must be freely given to the one and only, I'm sorry, be freely given by the one and only Jesus Christ. Because of what? Because of Goodell. Because of infinity. The only solution is you have to be infinite. In order to freely give, Goodell was right. He didn't know it. I hope he knows it now. He died a long, long time ago. But his incompleteness theory testifies of Christ's infinity. Because every time there's a solution to something that is unsolvable, can't be proved, but we know it's true, and it is proved, we know Christ did it, and Christ did it because he's infinite. He takes infinite amount of information in and tells you what is proved. And, and again, that's why Melchizedek has to be Christ here. Has to be. Otherwise, Genesis 15.6 doesn't really work. It's diminished. The fact that this is Christ himself telling Abraham that you are saved by belief. That's Christ saying, he just did it. He does it all throughout the Bible. You're saved by believing in me. Why wouldn't, it be, why wouldn't he do it to Abraham? For the Abrahamic covenant, it has to be Christ. Because he says to Abraham, you will be saved because you have believed me. Who says that but Christ? Oh, anyway, to repeat, Genesis 15.6 is the one mountain. It's the one mountain. Salvation comes only through belief. John 11.25, all other religions are contaminated by works. Consider the implications of that. Consider the implications of the singularity, the exclusiveness, the exclusivity of Genesis 15.6 and Romans 1.16-17. Thank you, you see it. I'm just speeding up. And some of you might be thinking, why is born again a mystery? You might be saying, well, everybody knows what born again means. We all know. We say it all the time. You've got to be born again. Everybody knows about born again. I'm a born again Christian. Everybody says it all the time. Everybody knows it. We all know it. No, you don't. You don't know it. I know you don't know it. Because I also know who didn't know it. And so everyone says to me, we know what it means. And me thinks you do not know what you think it means. It does not mean what you think it means. You don't. It goes back to Genesis 15. Yay. What does it mean? Why did the Lord God, what did the Lord God of all creation, what was he trying to tell us when he said to Nicodemus in John 3.3, 3, most assuredly, this is God saying this to Nicodemus, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot see. What does that mean? He cannot enter the kingdom of God. What does that mean? What did that mean to Nicodemus? But the first easy question is, which kingdom? There are five kingdoms. The first being the eternal kingdom. 
and I probably should go against, go through it all in case somebody hasn't heard me do it. The first of the five kingdoms is the eternal kingdom, the timeless kingdom, or the infinite kingdom. Is that what Christ meant? The second is the spiritual kingdom. That's the dominion of those who believe in Christ. These are the church age people. Uh, Acts 2 to, to the rapture, that's the second kingdom. The third is the theocratic, theocratic sorry, uh, kingdom of Israel. That's the Israel kingdom, if you want to think of it that way. Established with a Mosaic covenant, which, as you know, was conditional. The Abrahamic covenant, not conditional, because that's a belief covenant. Uh, unconditional, Genesis 15, as is Genesis 9, the Noatic. Why are the Abrahamic and the Noatic covenants unconditional? Why? The answer is, Goodell is right again. Infinity. In order to be unconditional, you have to have infinity. I'll get to that next week. Christ on the throne for earth. Uh, oh, the fourth, I'm sorry. I got ahead of myself. The fourth is a messianic kingdom, and that's Christ on the throne for a thousand years. That's the fourth one. The fifth is the mystery kingdom, and that is a mystery. We don't understand it very well. That's Matthew 13, 1 through 52. And that can only be described as this amalgamation, this uh, formation of entities that appear to be Christian. Most of them, maybe some of them are. Who knows? But the, the doctrine of the godhood of Christ in, in the mystery kingdom is a hot mess. And so uh, it's uh, Christ is on the outside of these churches that deny his deity, Revelation 3.20. The mystery kingdom also includes the Revelation 3.1 churches, which are called dead. So, uh, it's a, again, it's a mystery as to how they should be described. The parable of the harvest applies here. That's Matthew 13.29. These people who set themselves up as gatekeepers as to who's saved and who's not saved, have not read the book. And they have no idea of the curse of the person of Christ. They just they, they can't grasp it. So which kingdom did you select? Which one did you pick? You got five, pick one. How many chose uh, the Genesis fifteen six one? Because one of them is Genesis fifteen six. Which kingdom is that? Raise your hands. If you chose the Genesis 15, say, of course, you never raise your hands. Never, never, never do that. You, are you crazy? You've got to be crazy. You don't do that. Okay, which one is the Genesis 15, 6 kingdom? Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, John 3, 1, came to Jesus by night and said to, to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him, John 3, 2. And Christ's response doesn't even address what Nicodemus said. doesn't seem to refer to Nicodemus' statement at all. And he says this, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does that mean? How does the born-again mystery address Nicodemus' avowal and again, Nicodemus is a ruler. He comes at night and he says, we know. That's the obvious question there. Who's the we in that in that statement? Who's all, who's all of that we? Is the we Israel? Is he talking about we Israel knows? Didn't seem like all of Israel knew. The Pharisees certainly didn't know. Some of Israel knew. Who's the we? He comes in secret. I'm sorry, he comes in secret at night to avoid being executed by the Pharisees. That's what he's doing. If he let the word out, the ruler of the of the theocratic system of the Pharisaical order is a guy coming to Christ at night, going, "We know your God, your these signs. We can't figure out what you're doing. He, this this is too much power. You got to be special." So he's the ruler here of the Pharisees. One of the rulers is the we also the Pharisees. And how many we's are there? How many Pharisees are there? We know there's some. How many? This is like Daniel's court, almost in a way, isn't it? 
And Nicodemus is imprecise. I wouldn't say he was wrong. Okay, I would. I would. But he definitely imprecise. Christ is not a teacher that came from God. He's God himself. God came from God. This is God, God. God, God come from God. This is a triunity element here. And Christ essentially says to Nicodemus, you Nicodemus as you currently stand will not enter the kingdom of God, which means what? And that changes, of course, to John 19, 38 through 42. Let me throw this out. If superdeterminism were true, why would Christ say that to him? Gotcha. Thank you. I heard the, the train is coming. Okay. Again, if superdeterminism were true, why would God say that you're not in the kingdom of God? And again, he's outside of time. Anywho, Nicodemus was obviously stunned by this. He got told right there that you're not saved. You're not going to make it. Right now, you're not. You're not saved. Remember, the Pharisees were the ultimate law and, bore, uh, law and excuse me, and works-based sect in all of history. They were the ultimate ones. They had so many rules, they couldn't even keep track of all the rules they had. And, the, and they therefore saw themselves as the arbiters of salvation, the gatekeepers of salvation. Sound familiar? And it's not altogether different from the works law churches of today. They love to be the gatekeepers. They love to tell you that they can't wait. They can't wait to tell you that you're not saved, and they are. They can't wait. Again, you have a position that allies yourself with the Pharisees. Read the woe to the Pharisees, Matthew 23. Not good. So why would you want to be? Uh, uh, I don't know. Why would you want to be allied with them? Church today thinks similarly. Uh, similarly, they they declare the saved from the lost. They're not being aware at all that Christ will not commission mankind to separate the saved from the lost. That's Matthew thirteen twenty nine. They what? God's not going to let you do it. Cause why? You're an idiot. We're all idiots. We're too. We're just drooling. What did Bill Fast used to say? Bill the Fast. We got mucus in the front and dingleberries in the back. That's us. Oh, you're not saved. You don't know. You know, you're not outside of time. The only one who can tell who's saved and who is not saved must be outside of time and must be infinite in order to take all the computations together. Once again, Kurt Moodall figured that out with incompleteness. We're in the inc- incompleteness. He is not. He's complete. Anyway, Nicodemus was shocked that he was not in the kingdom of God, not in the book of life of the Lamb of uh, uh, Revelation 13, 7, uh, 13, 8, not in the book of, of the life of the Lamb Revelation 13, 8. And Nicodemus logically assumed that Christ was telling him that only those who could come through the mother's womb a second time would enter the kingdom of God, John 3, 4. How is this possible, he said, John 3, 4, John 3, 9. But Christ was not referencing a physical birth process, but instead he's referencing a water and spirit mechanism. Do you know what that mechanism is? Because that's the barn again. He said there's a water and spirit mechanism that is not physical, but it's metaphysical. It's a divine act. It's water and God, John 3, 5. And he also says barn again is like the wind. And he says that uh, John 3, 7 through 14, it's like the bronze serpent. And, it, and barn again is like the ladder, Genesis 28, 12. And it's also being lifted by the bronze serpent, being lifted by Moses. All these components is the barn again mystery. And he says, how do you not know this, Nicodemus? You don't know this. How do you not know this? 
How complicated do you think this mystery is, or this born-again statement? This God who made this, to the teacher of Israel, the teacher of Israel never heard of it before. Good luck thinking you know what it means. That leads us to another easy question. What water is Jesus meaning? Okay, it's not an easy question. What kind of water is this? What is water besides the three-state, tasteless, odorless, colorless, transparent liquid that is the basis of physical life? Why did he make water that way and utilize it the way he does? What's it mean? I'm having water. What is it? It's two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom in each molecule. That's what we think we know. Nicodemus, a ruling Pharisee, asks his... He's risking his life to ask this question. Not, he's not asked to tell Christ something. He's risking the lives of those who comprise the we. So he's coming. The we stayed behind. He comes to tell Jesus that they, the we, have concluded that Christ is from God. The proof is these incredible signs that nobody else can ever do but him. And Christ ignores him. He does. This guy's... I'm going to die coming here, and you're going to say, you've got to be born again. You're not even in the kingdom of God. You're not even saved. You're not going to make it. You're not in the book of life or the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 13, 8. He, he says, uh, he talks about not receiving their witness. He gives Nicodemus the mystery of the born again in the water. Now, why would he do that? Obviously, he wants Nicodemus to know the mystery of the born again and the water. And I should say, enter into this record here, that once again, shock face. The commentators are the, the comment on this, the academians, the theological geniuses, they're confident that they're all smarter than Nicodemus. Every one of them. Can't find one that doesn't give you just point blank what he thinks it means. Nicodemus didn't know. And he said, how can this be? What is this? What does it mean? I don't get it. But the commentators today, they're nothing without confidence. Self-esteem. Well, we got lots of self-esteem. They're all smarter than Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. Not, not a teacher, not just a guy. The teacher, John 3.10. He's renowned. Everybody knows Nicodemus is brilliant. And he turns out to be right about being brilliant. He was brilliant. The academics, their consensus is that Jesus is speaking of the Messianic kingdom. That's the kingdom that he's, he's, he's referring to here. The thousand year reign of Christ is king of the world. They say that's the context. Oh, really? And, and, and listen, I understand their position. They also say that the water is not water. It's not physical water. Is it? What, what is water physical? We gotta talk about that for a second. Yeah, we can touch water. We can get wet. We can drink water. But it's weird. Water is weird. Everybody that's been in the evolution-creation debate knows the principles of water, the, uh, the uh, evidence that water has with regard to creationism. But they'll say it's, they'll say it's a metaphor for spiritual cleansing. Uh, listen, the clean water—it's the clean water of Ezekiel 36:26 that cleanses Israel uh, of their filthiness of idol worship, the taking out of Israel's heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36:26 through 29. And I don't disagree with all that. That's certainly there. But I don't think it's a millennial kingdom. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 29 most certainly is a millennial scripture. So I can see why they think this is a millennial 
kingdom that he's talking about. With that said, Jesus Christ is who? God Himself, the Word made flesh, John 1, 1 through 4, and John 3, 10 through John 3, 18. This is what the God does seven times. So when He finishes talking to, when He's completing what He's going to say to Nicodemus, John 3, 10 to 3, 18, He says, Pistalulu, Pistaluon in the Greek. He said it seven times. What do you think that word means? Seven times God himself says to Nicodemus, believe, 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 believe. Seven times. Which kingdom is that? Now, I think that Jesus Christ, being the omniscient, infinite, timeless God of creation, just might know the first place that the word believe is in the Bible. He just might know that. Just a thought. Kind of. Just go with me. And that would be Genesis what? 15.6. That's the first mention of the salvific principle of belief. No one knew the salvific principle of belief. Most people don't know it today. It was established in Genesis 15.6. Believing. That is the Abrahamic covenant with Melchizedek, who is obviously Christ says it seven times to Nicodemus. Do you think he was Melchizedek? Come on. Go with me here. And all of that we've been slogging through the past weeks. I submit that Christ goes to Genesis 15.6, the salvation fundamental, by the way of the seven believings. More evidence again that Christ is Melchizedek. So which kingdom is it? It's not the millennial kingdom. The Genesis 15.6 is not the millennial kingdom. Abraham was not wanting to know about the millennial kingdom. Abraham wanted to know that he was eternally saved, eternal salvation, eternal life. That's what he wanted to know. Eternal security, John 3.15. The millennium is a temporary kingdom. It's only a thousand years. The new city of Jerusalem is an everlasting promise. It's an unconditional one. Those who enter the new city of Jerusalem are forever citizens of the new city of Jerusalem. You cannot get your citizenship revoked. It cannot be rescinded. It's absolutely guaranteed unconditionally. And there won't be any need for conditions anyway because there won't be anyone choosing sin. You still have will. You won't choose sin. And the means is believing in Christ. That's the means that gets you in. John three twelve through 18. John eight twenty four, John eleven twenty five, Genesis fifteen six. That's how you get to be a new city of Jerusalem citizen. You have to believe seven times. He says that to Nicodemus. Obviously, he's referring back to Genesis fifteen six. And yes, there is a river of life in the millennium, uh, Ezekiel forty seven one through two, Zechariah fourteen eight. But the pure river of the water of life, there's that water again, is in the new city of Jerusalem. Is there possibility that the pure river of water of life is somehow related to what he says about water and born again to Nicodemus? Do you think he goes, okay, I know about this water. I'm the one that designed it. I'm the one that created it. I remember that water. I remember this believing thing. I'll put them both together and give it to Nicodemus. But it really doesn't have any continuity. I just threw a bunch of words at him, much like what I do, a word salad every week. Okay, how is being born again the same as the wind, the ladder, the human birth process, the bronze serpent, 
lifted by Moses and the burial spices because Nicodemus did the burial spices. He knew how this worked. How does all of that fit together? That's the born again mystery. How is it that you don't know that? It's like Nicodemus, he didn't know it. You think you got it? I would be very surprised and encouraged. Okay, I see that we are done. We will be back on June the 5th. We hope. The creeks don't rise and Christ doesn't come, which would be wonderful. One of those would be wonderful.
Before you meet him as the judge 